I am thankful to be here. I'm especially thankful to be at a conference where we recognize that it does no good to win the battle for the Bible if we are going to lose the battle for God. And while that battle needs to fight, be fought, and I thought of writing a sermon in which I fought that battle, I decided that pastorally after the last year, I should use this time to encourage you with the glorious privilege we have in communion with our triune God. Uh, Bob's choice of song and the first song was really pastorally what I was thinking that line, may the things of this earth go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's what I'm hoping will happen as we consider this. Turn with me in that spirit to Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna be looking at verse 18, but I wanna set the table a bit on that. In Paul's letter to, the, to Ephesus in chapter two, really in verses one through 10 to kind of give a really generic summary, Paul is speaking of our reconciliation to God, our reconciliation to God by the blood of Christ's cross. And then in verses 11 through 17, he speaks of our reconciliation to one another, most specifically our reconcil the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles to one another by the blood of that same cross. In verses 19 through 22, he then goes on to say that, that we have been actually formed into one kingdom, one household, a dwelling place for God, a, a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple of the triune Lord. Note that we've been reconciled together to Christ as one people, one new nation, one new household who shares the greatest possible blessing. The triune Lord dwells with us. And I wanna focus on that today and really just that. So look with me at Ephesians 2.18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let me pray. Father, we, we give thanks. We give thanks that you have created us, that you have provided for us, that even in our wicked rebellion against your holy law. You have loved us. And out of the overflow of that love for us, made the promise of sending your son and in fact sent him. We give thanks that the son of God became incarnate for us. We give thanks that he kept your law in every respect, that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We give thanks that he paid the penalty that was due to us for our sin at the cross. We give thanks that the Spirit was sent to apply that grace to us that Christ purchased for us. That you've given us eyes to see 
and ears to hear. Spirit, we are thankful that you've given us the gift of faith. That you, through that faith, have united us to your son, to the son. So that we are adopted as children of the father. We give thanks that we've been given the word of God, which we consider we pray that we would receive it as such. Guard my lips and my mouth and the hearts of these people from any error. Cause us to look to our triune Lord and be grateful. We pray that you would cause the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Christianity is Trinitarianism. The 19th century Reformed theologian W.G.T. Shedd wrote this, the doctrine of the Trinity is the most immense of all the doctrines of religion. It is the foundation of theology. Christianity in the last analysis is Trinitarianism. Take out of the New Testament the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and there is no God left. The whole Christian life is a life of communion with our triune Lord. Wilhelmus Brockel, who was already mentioned, a 17th century Dutch Reformed theologian said this, the entire spiritual life of a Christian consists in being exercised concerning this mystery. We are a people who have the privilege of worshiping our triune Lord. And in this glorious worship, we have communion with our triune Lord. And catch this, we have communion with each person in the triune Lord distinctly. I want to be clear, God is one, thus all the works of God are indivisible. His work of creation, his work of providence, his work of redemption, his work of consummation, all of which we hear sung of in the throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5, all of those works are indivisible. They are done by our one God. Hear, O church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And... Our one God eternally subsists in three persons. Thus, particular redemptive works can be rightly attributed to particular persons in God. Let me give you an example of that. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Note that we hear the Father being praised really throughout this entire um, passage from verse 3 to verse 14, which is really one long sentence. But we hear the Father being praised first, and we're distinguishing the Father in love sending the Son, particularly in verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we are distinguishing a praise to the Father for his love in sending his Son and electing us in his Son for salvation. Now look at, and we're capping that off with the praise of his glorious grace. Now look at verse seven. In him, in Christ the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So we distinguish the work of the Son in his redemptive work of purchasing grace for us. And then look at the work of the Spirit, verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed, you believed in Christ, you were sealed by, with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we distinguish our communion with the Holy Spirit in applying the purchased grace of Christ to us through his fellowship with us or in us. Our one God is three distinct persons. And when we worship, we have communion with God and we do so with each person distinctly in a manner that is in accord with their redemptive work. Now look again at Ephesians 2, 18. For through him, Christ, the Son incarnate, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Here's what I want to spend the rest of our time on. I want to look at the privilege of our communion with our triune Lord. And I want to do so by contemplating the manner in which we commune with each person in our triune Lord. And I want to do so because we are the people who in our confession, chapter 2, the last sentence, confess that the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him. So let's spend some time meditating on that truth together. To that end, we're going to consider three points. First, we're going to consider our access to the Father. Second, we will consider our access through the Son. And third, we will consider our access in the Holy Spirit. So let's look first at the fact that we have access to the Father. 
For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Christ and in the spirit, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father. I want to really consider sort of two truths there, one that's implicit and the other that seems more explicit. We have access to God and we have that access to God as our Father. We have access to God. Through him we both have access. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant, only the Jews had any access and if you wanted to have any access to God's temple, you went through that conversion to Judaism. And even that access was only through a high priest and only once per year on the Day of Atonement. But in Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access. There is now no distinction. The dividing wall of hostility has been brought down And what's most glorious about this is not that we're one united people, though that is glorious. What's glorious about this is that we're one united people who have the right to draw near to God. Ever since Adam sinned in the garden, we have been exiled from God's holy presence. And consider That scene, Adam and Eve fall into sin. You know the curses. You know the promise made in Genesis 3.15. And you know the end when they're kicked out of the garden and God places two cherubim, or two cherubs, the plural is cherubim, places the two cherubs guarding the entrance of the garden with the flaming sword so that you know that if you attempt to enter that garden, to enter God's holy presence. You will be struck down by that flaming sword. You will die. You have no right of access. We could no longer dwell with him. And God comes and makes promises that there is going to be a means by which his people dwell with him. But even in the midst of making those promises, the people were kept at a distance. Consider Moses in chapter three of Exodus at the scene of the burning bush. As he sees this scene and is drawn near, as he comes near to the scene, the first words he hears from the Lord are, Moses, do not come near. Stay back. For the ground that you're stepping on is holy ground. Moses was not to come near Further, remember that in Exodus 19 and 20, as the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, the people were not even to touch Mount Sinai. God was keeping his people at a distance due to their sin. Now he did provide a means by which they could meet with him. He gave them instructions for the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, a tabernacle in which he would dwell with them. But even then there was a problem. What happens at the end of Exodus? They complete the tent of meeting of the tabernacle. God's Shekinah glory fills the tabernacle. And we hear this somewhat horrific statement. No one was able to enter. Not even Moses was able to enter. God's people were still being kept out of his holy presence. 
they could not draw near. And Leviticus offers a type of an answer to that problem, particularly in the Day of Atonement. The high priest was permitted to enter once per year into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And he was only able to do that after offering an offering for his own sin. But even then, the people of God were still kept at a distance from God. I don't know if you know this about the tabernacle. You, you may have paid attention to the detail, but that, that section or that curtain, I should say, that separates the section we call the holy place from the holy of holies, that curtain had something stitched on it. You know what it was? Two cherubs, just like at the entrance to the garden, guarding the way in to the Holy of Holies. And if you tried to pass through those two cherubs, you would die. The people are kept at a distance, and the people waited for a promised Messiah who would bring them out of this ultimate exile. They knew the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15, the son of Abraham, the son of David was coming. But they waited for him, ever kept at a distance from God's holy presence, only able to come near God through their high priest as a representative and only once a year. And when Jesus came, we hear this amazing announcement that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, that brackets the entire Gospel of Matthew. I'll point that out on Saturday and not steal my own thunder. God, God took on flesh. The Word, well, you know John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word took on flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. And Christ went to the cross in our place. And when he died on the cross and the sky had turned black in the face of God's judgment, the flaming sword of God's judgment that guarded our way into the garden fell on him in our place. Condemned he stood. And the curtain that guarded the way to the Holy of Holies was torn in two so that the cherubs were separated and now we could draw near to God's holy presence through this one. Our Lord and Savior, our great high priest the atonement for our sins, Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. After he's talked about the fact that Christ has once for all given offering, an offering for all time. There is no need, more need for atonement for sins. Christ has fulfilled that. Now listen to what it says. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, better translated, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, listen to the first command, let us draw near 
with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have confidence to enter the holy places. Do you know how stunning that is to a group of Hebrew Christians to hear? We have confidence to enter the holy of holies. And since we do, let us draw near. Do you hear our great privilege? We have access, Paul says, by this grace in which we stand. Romans 5, 1 through 2. We can enter the holy of holies with thanksgiving. That's what's happening in worship. Please take time to meditate upon this. The church is being carried through the Son and in the Spirit into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God. And when we draw near to God, we come to God as our Father, as our Father. We do not come to him with a slavish fear of his dreadful judgment. No, we come as his beloved sons. We cry out to him, Abba, Father. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We come to him with our mouths filled with the profession. See what manner kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are the work of Christ is not the cause please hear this the work of Christ is not the cause of the Father's love for you the love of the Father is the cause of the sending of Christ for you We come to God in worship knowing that because the Father loves us, he gave his only begotten Son. And so we break into doxology with Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in Christ has given us or blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we sing to the praise of his glorious grace. Listen, I want to make this really clear because I think it's sometimes missed. We do not need to invent more exciting sights and sounds in worship to make it more helpful or eventful or outwardly glorious. Our worship is an outwardly simple worship. But in that outwardly simple worship, we enter into the Holy of Holies. We draw near to God as our Father. Every time we gather for corporate worship, every time we gather for corporate worship, we are carried through the Son and in the Spirit into the presence of God the Father. And we can boldly, by this grace, because of the great love he has for us, cast ourselves upon him 
as a good father. Though as sinners in and of ourselves, we ought to flee from his presence. We can boldly enter through the Son. And this leads to the way in which we commune with the Son. We not only have access to the Father, second point, we have access through the Son. Ephesians 2.18 again, for through him, that's a reference to Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through him is a reference to Christ. Christ has procured our access to the Father. He is the means by which we have access. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. The law would have stopped us. But Christ has satisfied its demands in precept and in penalty. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Penalty. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Precept fulfilled. We have one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. We need no other. He paid the price of our redemption and he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. He is the great high priest who offered himself through the eternal spirit and procured our right to enter in. We have no right to enter into God's holy presence in and of ourselves, but Christ has given us access. Christ has already entered in. I don't know if we think about that enough. When Christ ascends to the right hand of God the Father, he has entered in. He is there, and in him we draw near. Since then, we have a great, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in, has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. But let me carry that a step further. Christ is now, even now, right now, the great high priest who leads us in worship. We think about that enough on Sundays when we gather corporately as a body that the Son of God, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, is in fact the one leading worship. Listen to what's said in Hebrews chapter two, verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified, that's the church, all have one source, that's, that's a bad translation, are all of one, probably best to said, are all of one father. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, the church, us, brothers, saying, now listen, I will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers. Who is telling the name of the Father to the church? Jesus is. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Did you catch that? 
Who's the preacher? Jesus. This is why we can say that the preached word of God, second Helvetic confession, the preached word of God is the word of God. For when the pastor makes an open statement of the truth, Christ is preaching by the Spirit into our hearts and minds. Who's leading the singing? Bob Coughlin. No. Jesus is. When we sing the truth, Christ is leading our song by the Spirit. Think of what's happening in corporate worship. Christ carries us by the hand to the Father, and he, Christ, speaks and sings to us of the glory of his Father's name. What else do you have going on in your week that is better than that? Is it any wonder that Satan takes the opportunity of a virus to stop us from that? What is so good that you would ever allow yourself to be kept from that? Listen, it is utter foolishness that we ever replace that with entertainment. We do not need some powerful rhetorician who can wax eloquent regarding his musings on culture or politics or how to be more successful or how to have a better marriage or what have you. We need someone to openly proclaim the word of God. We need a godly man who's committed to know nothing among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We need men who believe in the power of God in the gospel rather than preachers who depend on human strength and empty the cross of its power. We do not need a professional band, by the way, to make music sound acceptable or a light show or slick backgrounds to find some kind of emotional appeal. We need a godly man to lead us in singing the truth so that the congregation can lift their voices to our triune Lord. Does it not minister to you when your music minister this week, Bob, just stops playing and you hear the congregation singing? By, by the way, Bob, I'm not saying you shouldn't play your piano anymore, just to be clear. Just making a point, it's rhetorical. <laughs> Listen, Christ is praying for us even now. Friends, Christ is not only leading worship and preaching and in singing, he is also advocating before the Father for us even now. Christ is praying for you even as I speak. What a comfort that is. Yes. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Think of the privileges of our Trinitarian worship. We have access to the Father through the Son, and finally, we have access in the Holy Spirit. Again, Ephesians 2.18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Holy Spirit applies the purchased grace of Christ to us. This is his mission. Christ 
came to purchase grace for us. The Holy Spirit came to apply that purchase grace to us. He is sent by the Father and the Son to apply Christ's work to us. Listen to how John Owen says this. From the first entrance of sin, there were two general heads of the promise of God unto men concerning the means of their recovering salvation. The one, the first one, was that concerning the sending of his son to be incarnate, to take our nature upon him and to suffer for us therein. The other, the second one, concerning the giving of his spirit to make the effects and fruits of the incarnation, obedience, and suffering of his son effectual in us and towards us. The Holy Spirit gives us the light of knowledge, effectually calls us by the word and regenerates our hearts so that we receive the gift of faith. He unites us to Christ through that same faith so that Christ is ours and we are his. He transforms our hearts and minds so that we love the Lord and his word and want to do all his holy will. He causes us to walk in his statutes and delight in his word. He transforms us day by day, more and more into the image of Christ, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Further, the Holy Spirit is doing this work in his people. Now catch this. He's doing this work in his people through the ordinary means that he has appointed. He's doing this work in his people through the ordinary means that he has appointed. The Holy Spirit provides the regulations for worship in the scriptures he has inspired. And the Holy Spirit empowers our worship. He gives what he commands. The Holy Spirit has not come to lead us into any other kind of worship but that which he has commanded in the scriptures. Whenever Christ's people are gathered to worship, Christ is among us by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has not come to lead us into any other kind of worship but this. And he is always empowering worship according to his word. The Spirit provides whatever God commands for us in worship. And the Spirit is not involved, I want you to hear this, is not involved in anything God has not commanded. The Spirit carries us into heaven in corporate worship and God dwells in and among us as his temple. That, what does that mean? That means that our worship, our corporate worship we gather, may look ordinary and comely to those without eyes to see but it's actually beautiful and glorious before the Lord. Let's face it, the exposition of the word, the sacraments, prayer, and basic congregational singing does not look that exciting outwardly. But when you understand that the Holy Spirit is fellowshipping with us, he's empowering those ordinary means to pour out the grace of God in Christ upon us, then those means become gloriously good for you and to you. Here's Owen again writing about the Spirit working through the ordinary means he's given. 
Herein lies that which all the beauty of the world fades before and becomes as a thing of naught, which brings all the outward pomp of ceremonious worship into contempt. I mean the glory and excellency that lies in the spiritual communion of the soul with God by the grace of the Holy Ghost in that heavenly intercourse which is between God and his saints in their worship by this means. Friends, the Holy Spirit is with us in our worship and he is praying for us as well. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Listen, we could get the greatest minds in Christianity together to write the most beautiful prayer that we can conceive. And it would be feeble and as nothing compared to the prayers of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. James Dolezal, who's quite good with his language, could construct the greatest of prayers, and please understand this, it would not be worthy of God in and of itself. The Holy Spirit knows us better than we know ourselves. And as God, he knows the mind of God, and he is praying for us. Think of that. The Holy Spirit, who indwells our hearts, is helping us. He's praying for us. The Son of God, the Christ, our mediator and surety and great high priest, is at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for us. Further, remember that, to, that we come to God as our Father, whom Jesus tells us is a good Father, who knows what we need before we even ask. That's why you have confidence in prayer. Your father knows what you need before you even ask, and he is good. The son is, if you will, taking our weak and poor prayers and sanctifying them by the righteousness of himself so that they are sweet savor before the father. And he's praying for us, and the Holy Spirit is in us praying for us. It's just a taste of what we have in Trinitarian worship. May we never take it for granted. Let me end with Paul's prayer for Ephesus. Before I pray, let, let, I want you to hear Paul's prayer for the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your love for us. We give thanks, son, that you purchased grace for us. We give thanks to the Spirit that you fellowship with us, applying the purchased grace of Christ to us uniting us to him so that we are adopted as sons of the Father. May we never forget the privilege we have in communing with our triune Lord and with each person distinctly. May we meditate on this. May we live our lives in contemplation of the mystery of the Trinity For the sake of your glory we pray, amen.